I can't say enough how wonderful it is to have you all back here again in church. Last week's Pentecost service felt like a revival meeting. The energy in the room was electric. It was palpable. Now, last year on this Trinity Sunday that we celebrate today, we got a little uh, fancy with our camera work, and actually Peggy recorded her sermon out by the cross in the, uh, in the courtyard. We had come a long way from the time you had to turn your head sideways to watch the service. So. But she said something that stuck with me throughout the year, and it's, uh, she reminded us that this is the only feast day that we celebrate that's based on a theological doctrine. You know, this three-in-one, one-in-three personhood of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's a tricky topic and ripe for, at a minimum, confusion, and at worst, heresy. I was told in seminary that it's only heretical if you teach it or preach it, so here goes. <laughs> now, the, the doctrine of the Trinity is integral to our Christian understanding. We affirm it every Sunday when we recite the Nicene Creed together. We affirm our belief in one God, the Father, one Lord, Jesus Christ, one being with the Father, and the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. And this sounds perfectly reasonable, but here's the tricky part. We are a monotheistic religion, squarely in the tradition of the Abrahamic faith. So these three persons must be one God. Each is a different personhood of the one God, and hence Trinity Sunday. See, it's confusing. Now, this sharp claim to monotheism, the belief in one God, would have been very important to the writer and listeners of today's gospel reading from John. It was written in the late first century, and John's community had been expelled from the Jewish synagogues, and they were seeking to affirm their community with their Jewish counterparts. They wanted to claim that Jesus was indeed the Messiah, announced by the prophets and in his death, resurrection, ascension, that he established God's kingdom here on earth, just as those prophets had foretold. And the Jews were skeptical and quick to claim that the belief in a Father, Son, and Holy Spirit was a kind of polytheism, and as such a heresy that made John's followers apostates, and they were expelled. Now in the reading, we find Nicodemus, a leader of the Jews, coming under the cover of darkness, as if he doesn't want to be noticed by his fellow Jews. He attests to Jesus coming from God because the great signs he's performed. Now, throughout John's gospel, coming to belief through signs is, is a mark of spiritual immaturity, not spiritual maturity, because it's easy to believe in signs, but the belief needs to penetrate much deeper, much deeper. It's got to get into your soul. And Jesus immediately challenges Nicodemus, and he says, Very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God without being born from above. Now, like we would, Nicodemus takes being reborn in the most literal of ways, entering a second time in the womb and being born again. Jesus responds, No one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of the water and spirit. He, Nicodemus remains confused. He's literally in the dark. And the reading ends with perhaps the most famous of scriptures, John 3.16, and it's less well-known but perhaps more important next passage. Indeed, God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. I think we could use a lot less condemning and a lot more saving in our understanding of Jesus' mission regarding creation. 
Jesus' interaction with Nicodemus underscores what we call the mystery of our faith. Things that cannot be literally explained, but in the sheer mysteriousness, they become revelatory. It's one of the things I find most appealing about the Anglican slash Episcopal brand of Christianity. You see, we're comfortable with mystery. Like today, the mystery of the Trinity. Or in a little bit, the mystery of what's going on during the Eucharist. Now, unlike some of our counterparts, we don't believe the elements, the bread and the wine, somehow become the actual body and blood of Christ, something called transubstantiation, nor do we believe the bread and wine somehow coexist with Christ's body and blood. That's called consubstantiation for those keeping score. No, what we believe is what's called the real presence of Christ in the elements. We don't need a formula for how it's present. We just believe which in a sense is what Jesus is urging Nicodemus to believe, to be born from above. In our inquirers class that we've been running recently for those interested in confirmation, and we do every year, we frequently run into believers from other Christian traditions who have been either told that their brand of faith has all the answers, or more frequently, there are things just one just shouldn't question. And I think this is unfortunate because it can leave one ill-prepared for the kinds of questions that life can throw at you, challenges that are a natural part of life, of living. I like that we here, we encourage questions. I think that through questioning, discerning, praying, and listening to the Holy Spirit here and now, our faith can grow stronger. It can actually flourish. Nicodemus is a model for the kind of curious Christians that we're allowed to become. Now sure, in this passage, he's a little confused and befuddled, but throughout John, he's the only non-disciple to make multiple appearances, each showing a progression in his faith. In chapter 7, he argues in front of the Sanhedrin that Jesus must not be judged without being given a proper trial. And in chapter 19, Nicodemus joins Joseph of Arimathea in a very public taking down and taking care of Jesus' body, and anointing him with expensive myrrhs and aloes. You see, Nicodemus demonstrates a growing faith of Jesus in spite of his questions. And in the end, he demonstrates a very public coming out in his faith. Nicodemus moves from questions to defending Jesus, to ultimately committing to Jesus and to his faith. And I think this can be a model for us to follow. You see, there are times when our faith is challenged, times like the time we just been co- we're just coming out of when our world literally gets turned upside down. Nicodemus shows us to not be afraid of the questions, of the doubts, but to lean into them, to continue to move forward toward Jesus, toward redemption found in the cross. As it says in the Scripture, and just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Questioning can strengthen our faith because it forces us to work through those hard questions, the kinds of questions that life has a way of showing us, questions around loss or aging or mistakes we've made in the past, addiction, loving our difficult neighbor, questions around call and service and authenticity who we really are. We're assured that the asking of those questions won't collapse our faith like a house of falling cards. 
And when you think about it, if it were that fragile, then just how strong was our faith to begin with? I like to think that our God is big enough to handle the hard questions. Our God is loving enough not to judge us by our questions, but instead to save us. Indeed, God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. This Trinity Sunday, we ponder and poke at the great mystery of the three-in-one, the one-in-three. It might confuse us. We might have questions. But I think eventually we relax into the mystery and know that at some deep cosmic spiritual level, we believe. Amen.